Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. No, no change, change without, without struggle. struggle. No, no one, one in power, power ain't giving, giving up, up nothing. nothing. No, no change, change without, without struggle. struggle. No, no one, one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. It is a matter of journalistic pride for me that this show was the first outside of northern Wisconsin to discuss in 2011 the proposed Gogebic Taconite iron mine in the Pinocchio Hills right by the Bad River Ojibwe Reservation. Thanks to massive resistance, the plan for the mine was canceled. Today, this show is again, though for the second time, the first to discuss another proposed mine in a pristine area, a copper mine in the Porcupine Mountains right next to Lake Superior. I uh, thank my guests to, for coming uh, back two weeks later to have the same conversation so that you can hear us. Again, apologies of, to those of you who were listening to Two weeks ago and heard the BBC instead. My guests are Chris Vaughn. He moved a few years ago from Omaha, Nebraska to the Wakefield area after falling in love with the Porcupine Mountains, Lake Superior and surrounding areas. He was appalled to learn about the plan to open a copper mine in the middle of so much majesty. In response, he launched protecttheporkies.com and the accompanying petition which you can find on that website. Also with us is Johnson Bridgewater. He has more than 20 years of advocacy and non-profit experience working on local, statewide, and international environmental issues. He grew up in central Minnesota, relocated to Oklahoma, where he served as director of the Oklahoma chapter of Sierra Club, and is now settled up north on the Montreal River, working for River Alliance of Wisconsin with a special focus on mining issues. And our third guest is Marty Erspomer. He's a musician an activist from Ironwood. He works in the hospitality business and hosts many tourists every year coming in search of beautiful nature. He manages the social media for the Protect the Porkies campaign. And thank you all for joining us again. Uh, let's start with you, Johnson. Uh, the Porkies, Porcupine Mountains. For those of our listeners who don't know, where are they? What are they? And why are they named the Porcupine Mountains? Sure. So this area is in the western end of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, the Porcupine Mountains is consistently, and I know um, Chris has some facts on this, but is consistently ranked one of the number one most visited state parks in Michigan and I believe in the United States. It is home to the largest remaining old-growth hemlock forest in all of the United States. And most importantly, it borders Lake Superior, and therefore it is sitting right on the shores of 10% of the world's surface fresh water. Mm-hmm. Chris, if you want to add anything to that, and um, then you can tell us uh, what's happening now and, and why you're on the air today. Right. So what we're talking about today takes place in a very pristine region of Upper Peninsula, about 20 minutes, 15-20 minutes north of Wakefield. Um, a Canadian company wants to build a metallic sulfide mine to mine copper. Copper is a very useful mineral and some of its value comes from its scarcity. However, we're arguing that there are other resources here which are far more scarce. One of those is Lake Superior. Uh, this mine would be just a, a stone's throw away from Lake Superior. Actually, the mining company has property on the, the lake shore of Lake Superior. As Johnson said, this is 10% of the world's surface fresh water. It's the largest 
freshwater lake in the world. This is at a time when we're coming to live in a hotter, drier planet, when wars are being fought around the world regarding access to fresh water. So we argue that fresh water is a far scarcer and more valuable resource than copper. Secondly, we've got Porcupine Mountain State Park. Um, this is the largest state park in Michigan. It's the only state park in the country which has a designated wilderness area. It was voted last year by Yelp.com as the most spectacular state park in the country. So this is not just any state park we're dealing with. It's got the largest mixed old growth forest remaining in the Midwest. 98% of all the old growth in the world has been chopped down. So this is another very scarce resource, far scarcer and far more valuable than copper. Finally, we've got the North Country Trail, which is the, lo the longest point-to-point -point hiking trail of all the national hiking trails in the country. Uh, the Canadian company Highland Copper, they want to build their tailings disposal facility. This is where all the waste rock from their mining goes. It's going to be a humongous facility. These, these waste rock facilities are so large, they're visible from space. They're some of the largest constructions made by humans. They want to build it less than a quarter mile from the North Country Trail. It's going to be holding over 50 million tons of waste rock on topography that slopes towards Lake Superior. So this is really one of the big issues here is the tailings facility. These regularly have breaks and fractures which lead to acid mine drainage, which is when the sulfide from the sulfide bearing ore that the copper is extracted from mixes with water and oxygen and creates sulfuric acid. This leaches heavy metals out of the waste rock it gets into water, into streams, into groundwater, and continues to leach more heavy metals. There's actually never been a metallic sulfide mine in history which did not result in water contamination. So this metallic, this uh, tailings disposal facility would be on topography that slopes towards Lake Superior. So if there is a fracture or if it does crumble, we know exactly where all of that waste rock is going to end up. When facilities like this crumble, the waste rock can travel 15, 20 miles sometimes. And we're dealing with a facility that's only a few miles away. Finally, with regards to Porcupine Mountains, because the state park doesn't own its mineral rights, Highland Copper actually wants to drill underneath the Presque Isle River and extract copper from beneath the Presque Isle scenic area, which is one of the most gorgeous areas in the country. There are three spectacular waterfalls there. There's a campground, which is one of the most popular in the Midwest. And they want to extract copper from directly beneath old growth forest in the Presque Isle scenic area. So just to summarize, um, we're kind of dealing with two different ideas of scarcity here. The scarcity of commodities which have a price, like copper, and scarcity of resources which are priceless, like freshwater seas, old growth forest, secondary forest, which if you allow it to mature, it becomes wildfire resistant. Highland Copper is currently clear cutting hundreds of acres of secondary forest. And these resources are priceless, not because they don't have value, but because their value is infinite. So when you're weighing the two, you know, the price of copper, which is useful versus fresh water and old growth forest, one of those uh, we're arguing are infinitely more valuable than the other. And that's mm -hmm. what we're fighting to protect. Yeah. And, Marty, and I'll, I'll just add to that ahead, too, uh, as far as the value of copper goes, this mine has a 1.5% ore grade. So we're not even talking about a, a valuable payload here. And um, I just want also wanted to emphasize that this would be the closest mine of this type to Lake Superior or any of the Great Lakes, I believe in history for a 1.5% ore grade. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they want to mine beneath the lake too. Isn't that right, Chris? They, there's a strong possibility. We don't know their exact plans, but in some of the maps that we've received, it does show the potential to mine underneath the lake. Yeah. There's also the Tailings Dam, correct? Yeah, the Tailings Dam specifically is what could crumble and fracture. 
Um, as you mentioned, Marty, the ore grade here is 1.5%. Ore grade gets lower and lower and lower over history as we, as we mine up the high grade stuff and are left with worse options. As a result, almost 99% of that will be kept in the tailings facility. So over the course of the last 100 years, we are now storing more and more waste rock in these tailings facilities, which results in more serious failures. So the failures from these tailings dam crumbling are getting much worse. Even though our technology is improving, the amount of waste rock being stored is growing. And so when they fracture, it results in catastrophic events. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you, um, Johnson, that it is just 1.5%. What, what, what exactly does it mean? And uh, does it even make sense to mine it? Yeah, so the, the economics of this situation are one of the things that we're um, most upset about. We're talking about a tiny fraction of the world copper supply possibly being augmented uh, at the cost of, again, permanent and irreparable loss to resources that you can't put a price on. Um, as Chris mentioned, at 1.5% ore grade, you're literally talking about roughly 99% of what they're going to pull out of the ground, because this is a proposed underground mine, roughly 99% of what they pull out will be processed as waste. So um, when you asked me what I think of what does that 1.5% copper grade mean, it means don't think about getting a temporary mine. Think about getting a decades long, if not uh, if not permanent, massive waste handling facility, because that is what will remain. That is what we're talking about. They call it a tailings facility. It is a 400 acre. So stop and think about that. If you visit lakes, a 400 acre toxic lake. That's what we're talking about. And again, being held back by a built structure that, as Chris mentioned, if you look up uh, tailings dam failures, you will see not only are these routinely failing, they are routinely costing loss of massive life. This isn't a simple matter of just that it is going to impact 10% of the world's fresh water. It's, it's the, the potential of, of these things causing loss of life to biology and resources and uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but one of our biggest concerns is that in exchange for this tiny fraction of copper, you're talking about uh, potentially endangering uh, resources that tribes have a right to and regional uh, aspect of this, which is one of the major concerns we have is that treaty resources that River Alliance highly believes in are at risk here for the sake of a tiny uh, again, one and a half percent does means a tiny foreign private investment risking all of these public resources and tribal rights that are guaranteed by law. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you, um, Chris, a question um, after the failure of our show <laughs> two weeks ago. Uh, people talked to me about it and, and one of them said, um, we don't get water from Lake Superior, which I, I, I'm assuming he knows that for a fact. I actually didn't check. But um, what, let's say that it's true, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong here. Let's say that it's true the millions of people who depend on Lake Superior will still need to get water from somewhere. And this is really not very far from here, is it? Uh, correct. So I know you're dealing mainly with a Madison audience. However, there certainly are cities that get their drinking water directly from Lake Superior. Marquette up here in Upper Peninsula is one of them, and I'm sure there are others, but I can definitely cite Marquette. Duluth. Uh, just just Duluth. a minute. There you go. Marty. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, yeah, so... So regardless of whether we're getting our drinking, everyone is getting our drinking water directly from here, Lake Superior is the cleanest and wildest of all the Great Lakes. You can actually drink directly from the lake if you're feeling adventurous. I've done it many times. 
Um, really? It's also the headwaters. It's the headwaters of all the other Great Lakes because it's the highest of the lakes. So anything that happens to Lake Superior is eventually going to cycle into Lake Huron and into every other Great Lake. So this is this specific section of area that we're dealing with is some of the last wild coastline of Lake Superior. If you've explored uh, the North Shore of Minnesota and in Canada, there's highway following most of that coastline. So the area we're dealing with is some of the last wild coastline and it needs to be protected. And the, the lake itself is the cleanest and it needs to be protected regardless of how it serves humans. It is a great service to the ecosystem and will continue to be of service in the future in ways that we can't even predict. Mm -hmm. Marty, what did you want to say? I just wanted to mention that uh, it's it's not only um, Michigan that's on Lake Superior. I don't know who you talked to who said they weren't getting their drinking water from Lake Superior. You They, they might be getting it from Lake Michigan, which our water in uh, Lake Superior cycles into. You also have Duluth. You have Marquette. As Chris said, you also have uh, Canada, Thunder Bay, for example. Um, there, there's a, a lot of a lot of drinking water, and then uh, it's worth mentioning that it was all over the press a couple of weeks ago that the groundwater all over uh, the United States is drying up in the aquifers and everything, which means that the fresh water that we're talking about here is even more valuable. And yeah. I think that's worth noting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure who who you were talking to. I mean. Some uh, guy. Or how far they how far they are from Lake Superior, but well, he, he is the... here in Madison, and and really my point was that again, if we don't get water from Lake Superior, when the other cities cannot uh, really the other everyone cannot get water from there too, they will come for our water too, uh, which oh, which I is see. which is okay. a very. I don't think it's even a good way to think about it because um, all water is related and uh, yeah. it would be silly of us to just worry about what's happening right in our backyard. So, uh, but, you know, it's Definitely. it's a question worth asking. So, Johnson, you um, also wanted to talk about Duluth and, and some historic uh, pollution by mining? Yeah, you, you don't have to look far uh, to see what happens when mining on the shores of Lake Superior becomes a problem. And uh, I believe Marty mentioned it. There is a very well-documented history that the drinking water of Duluth became unusable because of mining companies directly dumping their tailings into Lake Superior. We don't want to go back in time. They address that issue. Duluth can now use it, uh, get its drinking water from the lake again. But we're talking about things that we have already seen happen. There's absolutely no reason to take such a risk happening again for such a minute private interest that, again, we're talking, as you mentioned, um, these are public uh, public bodies. And uh, especially you mentioned everything is connected uh, Two specific things I would mention. So the Red Cliff tribe has its fisheries based in Lake Superior, which would be decimated by an accident uh, at Copperwood, uh, and the Kakagan Sloughs with the Bad River tribe, which is considered one of the finest wild rice uh, estuaries uh, in the north. So again, we're talking about this, this tiny for-profit interest potentially damaging entire cultures and, and entire um, uh, cities that depend and live on these resources. So just just to clarify for myself, you mentioned Red Cliff uh, some years back. I uh, camped in their remote campsite right on the lake. Is that more or less where this is happening? Yeah, so the 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 Red Cliff is uh, west of the actual location, but again, in, in terms of the cycling of the water and the movement of the water, uh, it's it's not far at all. Um, so we're talking about probably by boat. Uh, I'm guessing less than an hour's boat ride, but again, it's all on the same shoreline. So if you follow 
if you started walking uh, at the shoreline where Copperwood is located, you could absolutely um, walk around and get over to the Red Cliff Fishery. And on the way there, you would walk by the uh, Bad River Estuary at Sakagan Saloons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sorry, uh, the the other people I haven't mentioned. So um, the Keweenaw Bay uh, Indian community it also has uh, uh, treaty rights to the resources in this area as well as do the Lac de Flambeau. So again, we're talking about not just the water resources, but this does impact. There are on the ground and air impacts. So again, we're just very concerned um, River Alliance has a strong belief in tribal sovereignty and tribal treaty rights. We are very concerned, again, that those could be potentially sacrificed for the sake of, you know, it's not even for Michigan, it's for some Canadian investors who will take all of that profit back to Canada and Michigan and the rest of the people in the Lake Superior Basin, we get decades of their mine waste in exchange. Yeah. Let me reintroduce you guys and invite our listeners to call. Uh, You just heard from Johnson Bridgewater. He is um, working for River Alliance of Wisconsin with special focus on mining issues. He's a local, as they all are. We also have with us uh, Marty Erspomer, a musician, an activist, and the manager of the social media for Protect the Porkies campaign. And also with us is Chris Vaughn, who started this campaign and um, I guess created the Protect the Porkies dot com, which is where you can find tremendous amounts of information um, about it once you're done with this show and you can um, sign a um, petition and send other people to look at it too. You are welcome to join us if you have um, concise and relevant questions or comments. 608-256-2001. Be sure to dial 9. We do not have a reception to a receptionist today. You can also join us on social media at Word Talk on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call the thing. Uh, or um, a public affair on Facebook. Um, Chris, we've been talking about water, but it's not just water, is it? Yes. So this mine has the potential to affect the entire ecosystem um, and also the economy. Let's take a look at those words, ecology and economy. They've got that same root, eco. That means home in Latin and Greek. So the ancients understood that these two things are connected. Here, this is one of the most thriving areas of outdoor recreation in Michigan. Outdoor recreation in Michigan brings in about $11 billion per year. Mining brings in $1 billion. So we're talking about a 10 times increase, more than a 10 times increase in the revenue brought in from outdoor recreation. This mine which would be in extreme proximity both to the North Country Trail and the most spectacular state park in the country, is going to be contaminating the area with air pollution, both from their humongous fleet of diesel generators that are going to be running nonstop, uh, spewing contamination into the air, and from the exhaust system of the mine itself, which brings up the dust from underground and throws it into the wind, which then can be transported many, many dozens of miles, carrying heavy metals such as mercury, arsenic, selenium, lead. There's no way to control where those heavy metals end up. There's also going to be light pollution, sound pollution, underground blasts. The people that come to the Presque Isle campground love it because at night you can actually see the stars. This is one of the few places in the Midwest where you can actually see the Milky Way. All you need is a small amount of light pollution to totally eradicate a decent view of the stars. On top of that, there's gonna be sound pollution from rock grinding. We can already hear the noise from clear cutting that's taking place on the mine site. If you walk along the North Country Trail, the sound is deafening. You can even hear it from the Presque Isle area. So if we can already hear clear cutting, imagine what's happening when they're doing rock grinding. And I'll add underground. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. You know, keep going. 
Well, the underground blasts, which are necessary for mining, can be felt for many miles away. So it's pretty inconceivable that the effects from mining blasts won't be felt on the North Country Trail, won't be felt in the Presque Isle area, and possibly will even be felt in the Black River Harbor area, which is also only a few miles away. I'm talking in terms of how these things affect humans, but how underground blasts affects marine life is still being studied. All of these are going to have tremendous impacts on the ecosystem, and it's already happening. Even though the mine hasn't been developed, they're currently clear-cutting. They're clear-cutting hundreds of acres of forest. When you clear-cut forest, you're replacing damp, shady conditions with hot, dry, windy conditions and increasing the risk of wildfire in the region. So this is not a theoretical thing. We're already seeing destruction happening, even though the mine might never be built. So again, we have to weigh, is it really worth it, all of this carnage, all of this mayhem for a mine which has a start and end date? The mine will last 10 to 14 years. And then that contamination, the tailings facility, the acid mine drainage can last for centuries. Acid mine drainage, we don't know the end date. It, it can be upwards of 10,000 years. And this is for the profits of a Canadian CEO and a Canadian mining company who are going to be out of here in less than two decades. Is it really worth it? I don't think so. Yeah. The na name of the uh, of, of the the mining company is Highland Copper. You can look them up. Uh, just to add to what Chris was saying, the uh, some people um, are talking about you know the economic aspects and benefits from a mine like this, but as Chris mentioned. Uh, tourism has ballooned to a $10.8 billion industry in Michigan. It provides over 100,000 jobs. I think this mine is going to provide something like 80 jobs, maybe over a period of 10 years. Uh, it's also worth noting that um, to those numbers, we add $1.3 billion per year to that in terms of growth and 1,600 jobs per year. That's double the rate of the growth of the economy of Michigan itself. So I would argue that there's more uh, economic benefits from preserving the parks and preserving the lake. And as someone who runs a, a small hospitality business, it's all about the lake, Lake yeah. Superior. Yeah. Diane, you are on the air. Oh, Diane dropped. Okay. Well, Diane uh, Sorry. wanted, she wanted to know um, what was, what is the corporation? And we already mentioned it's Highland Copper, but um, tell us about Highland Copper, uh, Johnson. Yeah, so what I'll add to that is, unfortunately, the big new development is that it is not just Highland Copper. They recently struck a joint partnership, a joint venture with a, a larger Canadian corporation called Kintera. Uh, so what we now have is the original idea of Copperwood is now being joined by a second company known as Kintera, who in exchange for $30 million in cash delivered to Highland Copper to keep the Copperwood project going, which is the reason we are so concerned at this point, they are now cash heavy to be able to keep pushing forward on this project. In exchange, Cantera is coming in and we have already verified that they have begun the permitting process and groundwork to try and reopen a mine that would bookend the Porkies called uh, uh, White Pine. White Pine sits on the east edge of the Porkies, the way Copperwood sits on the west. So what we are now talking about is a joint venture between Kintera, which is trying to reopen White Pine as White Pine North on the east edge and on the North Country Trail, joined through this joint venture to Highland Copper's Copperwood project, which sits on the, the um, North Country Trail on the west edge of the Porkies. So the sad reality is not only are we now talking about uh, this, this potentially tragic situation of putting a tailings facility on a slope above Lake Superior, they're wanting to reopen a mine that was actually sued and a court order was issued against it for long-standing contamination and pollution issues. Now they're claiming they want to go in and reopen that mine as well as part of a regional uh, attempt to quote-unquote revive mining 
uh, in the UP. And again, people need to understand, these are not your grandfather's mines. These are temporary investments for these corporations to try and reap some profit that would be exported to Canada, both Kintera and uh, uh, Highland Copper or Canadian corporations in exchange for a temporary mine. And then we again would get decades of contamination out of both of those corporations in exchange. Mm -hmm. And and Highland Copper, um, as I understand, has already violated permits that it got and um, maybe even uh, racked some fines. Who is giving these permits and what happens when they um, when they violate them? Uh, Marty, do you know? Do, would you like to respond to that? Johnson, I believe, told me that it's the EGLE who's giving them. It's a, called an incremental permitting system. And that's why even though they, they like to uh, say that they're a fully permitted mine, but they're not. Uh, and that is why they're al allowed to do the clear cutting that they're doing right now, even though the mine hasn't completely been authorized. But I think Johnson knows a little bit more about that process than I do, which is very convoluted, I would say. Yeah, would you like to explain a little more, Johnson? Sure, so this is actually at the very center of the big problem here. The Copperwood Mine, if you go to Eagle, which is, uh, Eagle is the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, which used to be known as the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, in the 90s, they became the Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy. And I'll, I won't go into a tirade about the, the, uh, the idea of putting environmental management and energy management into um, one organization. Uh, but Eagle has issued and are able to now issue what they call mining permits issued but not effective. Okay, but... Even though their mining permit is not effective, which means they haven't yet completed all of the steps necessary, the three big remaining steps are, uh, more than anything, they have to secure financial bonding. They have mm. to be able to guarantee that if a catastrophe happens, they can handle taking care of that and that the state of Michigan would not have to. That's another whole discussion on whether they will even be able to find a company willing to bond them. Um, but they haven't even completed the final engineering on the tailings dam we've discussed or the tailings lake we have discussed. However, they have several permits that are issued along the way, such as the 301 and the 303. So I, I apologize, this is the convoluted part. But what uh, is tied to this central issue we have of Michigan issuing this mining permit that is issued but not effective is a unique fact that Michigan is only one of three states in the United States that have been granted by the EPA the authority to issue these inland lakes permits and these dredging permits, which are normally only issued and reviewed by the Army Corps of Engineers. Michigan and New Jersey and Florida have the ability to do that permitting themselves. And this is our big concern here. We don't believe that they uh, have been issuing these permits in a way that maximizes environmental value, but because they have special authority from the EPA, the federal government is not currently involved in this permitting process. And this is again, an area of contention um, that we know that there are attorneys and others looking at the situation because of this. Um, but to, to get back to the basics, this is the state of Michigan has issued a mining permit, which has not yet actually met all of its requirements, but they have gone ahead and because they have already issued their wetlands permit and their dredge and fill permit, they've allowed them to act on those permits without having final engineering or approval for the rest of the project. This in our minds, as Marty mentioned, is incredibly problematic to, to use a kind word and frankly should not be allowed. Yeah, and then sorry um, if that um, you had to wait, um, if we didn't answer your uh, question 
um, fully, you are welcome to call back. We do have another caller on the line right now. Um, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, SDI, I value the variety of your programming and the porcupine hemlocks personally from experience. So, John, Marty, and Chris, could somebody explain how you get a profitable business model from an extraction process that necessarily consumes energy to separate out 99% waste by volume? Thank you. Um, <laughs> good question. I can't explain who, who, it. I'm not an economist, but it doesn't make sense to me either. Yeah. Who, who, who can explain it or just talk about it? Johnson. Well, um, Chris. Yeah, go ahead, Johnson. Well, I was just going to say, this is the, the central issue. Typically, what happens on these projects, they are for, forgive me, but they are pyramid schemes. What re repeatedly, the model for mining has not changed in 150 years. You get what's called a junior partner who does a lot of preliminary work and talks it up as this great investment. They sell that along to somebody with more money and more experience at some point, that project often completely fails uh, it, to materialize, as we're seeing over in the Back 40 project, uh, in, um, also on the, ironically, on the Michigan-Wisconsin border. But the point here is, this is the, the, the economics of this is what we're so concerned about. We believe they were gambling on this idea of copper being deemed a quote-unquote critical mineral. This is a debate that is going on uh, at the federal level tied to the idea that if we are going to uh, have a green economy and a green infrastructure built, it's going to require massive quantities of copper to make that happen. And therefore, we need to uh, give copper special status. And if that happened, which it did not, this is the important thing. There were going to be billions of dollars of U.S. investment poured into the copper industry. The United States looked at the numbers, and anybody who wants to look this up, the United States is a net copper exporter. We have more than enough copper every year. We believe that this was talked up and started uh, with the belief that this notion that copper is a quote-unquote critical mineral, which it is not, and again, was formally deemed not critical. Um, but unfortunately, they have, as typically happens, they've found a bigger investor who looked at the, the Copperwood project, looked at their ownership in White Pine North. They're, so they lump them together. So if you want to know how, what they're trying to do, they're basically trying to come up to a larger point where if we can grow this project up to a big enough point, then it magically becomes profitable. So again, it is in our minds, if you would, a pyramid scheme. And I'll pass this over to, uh, to Chris. Yeah, Chris, go ahead and, and then I have another question for you. Right, so just to emphasize, Highland Copper is a junior company with zero experience opening or operating a mine. What we're dealing with here, as has been mentioned, is 1.5% ore grade. Compare that to the White Pine Mine on the east side of the park only 30 years ago, which was 20% ore grade. So what we're seeing over time is that the ore grade, the amount of copper present in the rock, is decreasing. This means that the, the amount of waste being stored is larger. It means it's far more expensive to mine and that companies, especially small companies, have a very tight financial margin for safety measures. There's no safe way to store this heavy metal laden waste rock, but when you're a company with a small budget, you're gonna pay even less attention to safety than a larger company. So again, to emphasize, these guys have no experience. Uh, in order to get the final permits, they need financial assurances, which means they need bigger investors with deeper pockets to come in. So that's the real tragedy here is that they might never develop this mine. In the meantime, they are clear-cutting hundreds of acres of forest, which should be allowed to mature. They're destroying wetlands, and they're rerouting streams. Right now, they're doing what's called wetland mitigation, which is a really innocent-sounding phrase. Basically, you destroy established wetlands where countless species are thriving, and then you dump some water a couple miles away, plant some cattails, and call it a day. That would be like if I bulldoze your neighborhood where your family and friends are living, and then I develop some uh, you know, cookie-cutter empty homes a few miles down the road, and I say, don't worry, some humans are going to move in. It's called human mitigation, so it's all good. 
just to emphasize what Johnson was saying about the United States being a net exporter of copper, we should also look into where we get our copper from. Mining is only one option here. Copper is actually 100% recyclable. So we can keep cycling copper again and again and again, and it loses none of its utility. But we're currently only recycling 35% of the copper in our possession. Furthermore, when you recycle copper, it emits 65% less greenhouse gas than mining. Hmm. So if this is truly a green energy operation, then they should close down and invest all of that money in copper recycling. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, I want to let our listeners know again that they can see actually a video of um, the area being clear-cut. It's, it's, um, it's horrifying to watch that. And, and you see the clear-cutting, you see the devastation that comes with it, you see the noise that comes with it. Um, again, protecttheporkies.com. I wanted to ask you, oh, and also to remind our listeners that if they do have questions or comments, we have only about 12 minutes left. So 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, I wanted to ask you, Chris, also, you mentioned early in the show that the state doesn't own mineral rights. Um, what? What does that mean? And um, yeah, what does that mean? How, how does it affect the situation here? It's bizarre to me as well. Most people in the area in Upper Peninsula, because it's an area with a history of mining, nobody here owns their mineral rights. Um, I think Johnson can probably speak to this better. But basically, as long as you go underground, which is what Highland Copper will be doing, they can spread as far as they want and and extract minerals from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Johnson, do yeah, you want to add to that? Yeah, to oversimplify it. So unfortunately, um, again, not to get wonky, but uh, American law is largely based on English common law, which asserted a separation between the surface and the ground. Uh, and what is really uh, typical of, say, a monetized capitalist system, they give priority to the underground portion of that land. So if you have mineral rights, you actually can impose your will on the people of the surface, which is why having those mineral rights is so uh, damning. What is unusual is, I guess, in it, it, it's not unusual that the mineral rights and the surface are separated, but to have the most uh, popular state park in your state and to have not secured those rights, that's something we're very concerned about because there are processes in Michigan law to go in and secure your mineral rights. It's convoluted and it's not simple, but the point here is, sadly, most people in the United States, unless their state has enacted some after-the-fact law, uh, a separation between mineral rights and surface property is part of common English law. Uh, and again, uh, problematic to anybody who values the, you know, the 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 un the unquantifiable um, value of a resource versus trying to monetize it into um, components. Yeah, um, Marty. Um... Yes. I read that at least one of the affected streams is home to an endangered species. You, as you said, are in the uh, hospitality um, industry, shall we say. Um, how, like, this is one example of what is going to happen. How, how can you, or how have you already uh mobilized mobilized people who come there for the beauty of the place and all the resources that are available well we're trying to get uh, our sort of grassroots social media game going uh, before i get into that i will mention that i'm here to give the good news okay yeah, well, we have we have been uh, been in contact with some officials we i i spoke personally to attorney general dana nessel who was very interested in uh, finding out more about this and getting her team uh, looking at it and seeing what can be done about it. 
I also spoke with uh, Senator Gary Peters about it and am in contact with his people about it. And he was very interested and didn't think that this was a very good idea. Uh, the best thing we can do right now uh, is we got to mobilize. People need to know what is going on here and they need to contact uh, the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and our senators and just let everybody nobody thinks this is a good idea that i've talked to and as far as our social media goes um you mentioned um our youtube channel which is at protect the porkies uh also our facebook page is just simply protect the porkies we're also on instagram and threads at protect underscore the underscore porkies I can't remember why I did that. And uh, we are also are on X, uh, a.k.a. Twitter, and it's simply at Protect Porkies. There's also a subreddit on Reddit. That's r slash Cancel Copperwood. Um, our change.org uh, petition has 5,050 signatures as of this moment, I believe. And... There you go. I think yeah. that Chris has something to add. Yeah. So just to be clear, protecttheporkies.com. We are not an organization. We are a movement. We're a people's movement. Everybody that's listening right now that cares about Lake Superior, that cares about old growth forest, that cares about protecting the biosphere, you're all a part of this movement. And so we ask you to contribute in any way you can. Signing the petition is the first step, but we are fully aware that internet petitions make us feel good and don't necessarily do anything. So we have plans in place to bring the petition out of the cyber world and into the real world. That will be happening sometime early next year. We want to deliver the petition in person to Governor Whitmer Whitmer's office, combined with media attention and try to get some heads turning. So however you can contribute, please, this conversation with you, Esty, we want this to be the first spark that sets the world ablaze. So, so do who I. else can we get so in contact I, with? We, we invite your listeners to contact their favorite radio shows, podcasts, TV shows, YouTube channels. Tell them to cover the story. This is of urgent importance. Yes, thank you. And um, Jade will um, make links to all of these things that you mentioned, and that'll be on our website um, on the page of the show today. And you can send it to all the people that you know and um, get them to support it too. Uh, Amy is on the line. Go ahead, Amy, you're on the air. I was listening. Um, thanks for this really important show as the um, anniversary, and I can't remember which anniversary it is, of the um, purchase of the Crandon Mine property in Wisconsin by, I believe, the Mullet Lake Tribe and a, a coalition of people is coming up um, in October. And as you were talking about the pyramid scheme connected to financing of what looks like losing projects, do you think there is perhaps a game being played here in which these companies might try to be extorting money out of the indigenous tribes in these areas to get them to purchase these properties um, hmm. with their funds? Hmm. Interesting question. Johnson? I, I don't, I can't speak to anything like that. I would just like to throw this back that we do see this as a form of green colonialism in the sense of this whole idea that, oh, uh, we can stave off climate change. We can make the big effort needed. But, oh, by the way, we need uh, the, the very things that these indigenous cultures live on. Again, these aren't resources to these cultures. These are living beings. Um, so that is what I would like to point to is the notion that how in the world can a state with the history it has look back at the 1842 treaty that guaranteed rights to the indigenous tribes in this area, how can they value this tiny, not even an American, not even a Michigan investor, an out of US, a foreign investor, why would they possibly prioritize their rights over the rights of local tribes like Keweenaw Bay, uh, Red Cliff, uh, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have about four minutes left. Those three of you, I'm going to give you each a minute and a third to um, 
give us whatever is on your mind um, that you think is important for our listeners to hear. Marty, go ahead. A minute and a third. We can get uh, the copper from someplace else much more conveniently, much more cost effectively. The water is much more scarce, the fresh water here, uh, not only by virtue of, of its own existence, but everything that's implicated within it from tourism to nourishment to everything. The water is more important. Okay. Johnson? Yeah, I would like to point out that the, the number one issue here is, as Marty just mentioned, this is a regional concern because Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan are some of the most water-rich states in the United States. And we need to think about this, and I'm glad both, both Chris and Marty have hit on this. Water is going to be the, it already is, if you're of a certain mindset, it is going to be the number one most important resource and i would just like to give a shout out um river alliance has been engaged uh, the previous caller mentioned so on october 28th we are going to have uh, there will be a huge celebration of the crandon mine victory uh in uh, the mole lake area so people can um, attend that but i would just like to point out that river alliance of wisconsin has been at this uh, for quite some time, all the way back to Crandon. If you go to wisconsinrivers.org, we have a mining page dedicated to mining education, and we would ask people to go there and take a look. Yeah, and I just want to quickly say that um, when we did that first show about the proposed mine in the Pinocchio, one of our guests there was one of the activists who um, won that won that um, struggle and then the Bad River won won it and um, we can win on that one too. This one, yours, <laughs> not yours, ours, everybody's. Go ahead, Chris. Right, so there's a lot of copper in the ground. There's many minerals in the ground, but we have to, if we pretend to be moral humans, we have to draw the line at what we're willing to consider. If we don't draw the line around protecting old growth forest, secondary forest, freshwater seas, that means we don't draw the line anywhere. And that's a really scary place to be as a species. Um, a Canadian company, they want to come in, make a fast buck and contaminate this beautiful area forever. In addition to endangering clean air and clean water and destroying countless plant and animal lives, this will endanger a thriving outdoor recreation industry. Think about that word recreation, recreation. This is not a word to be taken lightly. People here come to get a moment of peace and quiet in nature. That is a sacred experience by filling the area with sound pollution, light pollution, air pollution. What they're doing is akin to burning temples, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Chris Vaughn, Johnson Bridgewater, Marty Erspomer. Uh, thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us thank again. Thank you. And um, really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Summer and Jade. I'm Esti Dinor. Stay tuned for the funny boys. We'll be here again next week. Bye-bye. Oh,